football manager. That was my youth. I don't know what your youth was like, Dr. Pete Watson. I mean, there was a lot of um, BBC World Service when we lived in Colombia, for example, back in the kind of late 80s and early 90s. So, See. So um, no, we used to... We, yeah, we used to tune in at uh, whatever time it would have been, but probably about midday in Columbia to try and pick up the results on a Saturday afternoon. And Whenever Five Live say, and thank you, welcome, good afternoon to listeners on the BBC World Service, you forget that that is how football used to be consumed. It was Ken Wollstonehome or Barry Davis or John Watson being beamed out for various bits from Radio 2, as it was, um, before Five Live, to the World Service. And now you've got BBC Sounds everywhere you go. Going on holiday used to be a luxury because you could unplug from everything. I remember coming back in 1999 and there was different music than there was than when I'd went away. Now you just reach abroad and plug in. So in a way, the world is worse than it was. But in Colombia, segue, well, things have happened in the last few days. Very handily, uh, you're a PhD doctorate in Iberian and Latin American stuff as the technical term goes so um are you optimistic about president petro um i mean there's a big question i mean i think that it's a change or it's a potential change but i don't think you can ever be optimistic in south america until actually something actually happens i think you always see a lot of people celebrating in the streets when there's a new president but actually they're very rarely celebrating during the presidency itself I mean, I think that there's, Colombia has so many structural issues that are not going to take four years to solve, to unpack and sort out. It's just impossible to do that. Um, it will certainly provide a, a different perspective. Um, there'll be a, certainly a renewed uh, emphasis on, um, on fulfilling the requirements of the peace process. Uh, whether Colombia can finance it, whether Colombia can uh, has the political willpower of, of the the most important set of society in order to really implement it's debatable it's also debatable whether those who are involved in the for example in the drug trade and who have carved out small kind of um kind of mini state fiefdoms in the peripheral areas of Colombia will actually seek to you know lose the benefits that they currently have even though that's part of the conflict so i think there'll be a very new approach uh, i think that that is that is that is potential source of optimism uh, but I think there are so many structural problems that Colombia has that, you know, that it'll, it'll take a lot of work for Petrol and his supporters to really make the change that his, his people really require. I read the Times piece this morning and uh, he said, we promise a real change. God, it will be a change. They're left wing for a start. They want to ban new oil exploration, ban fracking for shale. Uh, he promises free university tuition and universal basic income for the unemployed. He wants to tax the rich, which is always dangerous. Uh, but he does have the support of Bogota because he was the mayor of Bogota. So all your friends from childhood who have grown up, will they have voted for him or will there be a mix? There's very much a mix. I mean, I was in a British school uh, in Colombia from 1989 to 1992, uh, and that was quite an affluent school, so that you're talking about the more affluent member society. Many of those are very anti the kind of the group that, that Petro comes from, from the left anyway. Certainly one of the guys in my year group, his father was kidnapped and killed by the FARC. You know, there were, there were various kind of what's called la pesca milagrosa, miracle fishing, where you were driving around the countryside, there was a potential for good years to, to pick people up, you know, roadblocks and then kidnap them. And, you know, there were various, you know, wealthy families who, who struggled with that. So there was a lot, a lot of suspicion, there were a lot of deep-seated uh, doubts. You know, there were a lot of reports of, you know, terrorism, of 
you know, kidnappings or killings or bomb attacks or child recruitment, you know, but then again, the kind of the paramilitary side of things were also responsible for the, for also probably more atrocities. Uh, and oft, often these kind of paramilitaries originated from more affluent landowning sectors who were originally trying to protect their lands because the state was failing to do so. So there will be people who are very much against, people I knew who are very much against Petro and the left in general. And you can understand their reasoning. Similarly, there are there are people, you know, in my in that class, in my year group, in my school, who are very aware, you know, because they're educated, because they can see what the socials are, what the social problems are in Colombia, and see that you know the political right, the establishment, you know, is very much uh, responsible for for the kind of structural issues that kind of prolong these inequalities in society. It is very different. Now, certainly the people that I met on field work, you know, when I was doing my research into, you know, how football is being used in Colombia, largely will be supporting, um, you know, change and, and more the kind of more slightly centrist, leftist elements of, of Colombian politics. So, so there really, I mean, it is, it is a real difference. You know, there is, there is a lot of polarisation and different opinions on, on how best to do things. And there's a lot of fear, you know. I mean, Colombians just have to look across their borders to Venezuela to see, you know, what kind of damage, you know, a leftist government has done to Venezuela. I mean, it's an incompetent leftist government, but, you know, but there are, there are examples of things not working. Colombians are rather afraid of that. So, you know, it is a, it's, it is a very kind of polarised political climate, I think it's fair to say. Thank you for that. I listened to a, a podcast with Greg James, the Radio 1 DJ, and his wife, the novelist, and daughter of Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian, Bella Mackey, called Teach Me a Lesson. And you, with your PGCE from Bristol, uh, with your uh, teaching status at the University of Leeds, that must have been a fun year. Uh, did you bump into Marcello Bielsa at all? No, no, not at all. No, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a Leeds fan. Uh, I, only, I live in Sheffield, actually, so, so I don't, I'm only there to, to go to university uh-huh. to lecture. But, of course, a lot of the lecturing was online, so... So, you know, for a while I didn't actually didn't get into Leeds at all. Yes, but the, the point about teaching was that what you've done, you're, you're even sort of on a retainer. You're, maybe you've been given a chair of kind of the South American professor at large uh, for these football times. Season one was about nations. Season two was on clubs, including Deportivo Cali. 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 Uh, and you have said football is the only thing that unites Colombians which means that you're in a good position to bring out via Liverpool University Press a book version of your doctoral thesis, Football and Nation Building in Colombia, the only thing that unites us, uh, based on a hashtag which is un país en una concha, or cancha. What does that hashtag mean? Because it seems to be that the last 10 years of Colombian politics have been all about football, hashtags, and of course this ceasefire that happened as you were writing your thesis. Hashtag means one country uh, on a field, on a pitch. Uh, it was a, a hashtag that was used quite a, quite a lot by various players, various politicians during the World Cups to to kind of espouse the idea that Colombians were were playing all together on the same field for a change. It was kind of resonating with this this peace narrative that the then president Juan Manuel Santos, who you know won the Nobel Peace Prize in, in 2016. Um, Santos was a president that was trying to really unite the country. was was trying to um, bring bring about a, a peace process with the FARC, you know, the the longest lasting um, civil conflict in the in the Americas. And football was a very propitious site to try and imagine the country united. You know, there's lots of divisions in Colombia. We've already talked about 
you know, the division between the left and the right, but we could kind of point to, you know, urban versus rural, white versus black, rich versus poor, liberals versus conservatives, uh, you know, different, you know, those who are religious, those who aren't. There, there are so many different kind of binary, op- binary oppositions that have been expressed in conflict throughout Colombia's history. So it's, it's been very difficult for, for Colombians to find something that, that really unites them, particularly when, as a nation, they've not had many great successes. It's been a nation that, you know, probably us in Europe really know for drugs or tragedy or bombs or violence. And unfortunately, this this experience is very much lived by Colombians. There aren't a huge amount of national triumphs. And so when things like sporting triumphs arise that aren't necessarily linked to a, a divisive issue of politics or society, then it actually is, is almost a safe, space, a safe space where people can forget their problems, their traumas, their worries, the pain and suffering and enjoy something that's positive for a change. So you're absolutely right. So you have this, this convergence of a political peace process and a, and a politician very much trying to find ways of selling this piece and trying to bring back a national enemy into the kind of national collective fold. Um, he's trying to find ways of doing it. And, and football, you know, as Colombia starts doing well again, we you know with the 2014 World, World Cup qualifying campaign and then relative success in that tournament, and then again a, a fairly successful tournament in 2018, you know, football just serves to be one of the ways in which Colombians can be united. It wasn't just football. Uh, any other kind of cycling success, weightlifting success, boxing success, the Olympics or various national sporting triumphs and so on are all kind of deployed for the same aim to try and say, look, we are all Colombians. We all support the efforts of Colombians. Look at us doing well. And wouldn't it be great if we can all live together in harmony? So it all kind of comes together in one kind of political sporting nationalism project. Yeah, Vamos Colombia. Um, is one of the hashtags. You say that there were, in fact, it's divided in the book. There are three elements of the National Unity Project, which counters uh, FARC. There are, one, political speeches and social media, two, public policy, and three, peace campaigns. I, rather than asking you to rehearse what's in this book, which comes out on August the 1st, President Petro will want to uphold the legacy of uh, the current president. Did Duque do that in the last four years? Yeah, I think so, but in a very different way. I think that you see a different message. Duque is someone that was largely anti much of the peace process. He had a rather different kind of a statement about um, the peace with, with justice. So it wasn't this kind of idea of we accept the FARC in and, and that's all fun and we forget all the kind of awful things that happened in the past on both sides. It was, it was kind of, we, we, we need to have some kind of sense of justice. So when, for example, a Colombian, whether it's someone like Egan Bernal in the Tour de France or whether, you know, someone like, uh, you know, Luis Diaz in Liverpool are uh, having these sporting successes, he will again proclaim them and say it's great to see this as an example of a country moving forward and a triumph of our nation and so on and so forth. So again, you see the same types of messages, but they're subtly different because they aren't quite talking about peace or unity in the same way. There is still a kind of uh, certain things have to be achieved. Certain, we, don't, we won't accept protest. We won't accept impunity. So I think that there is a, a same use of sport. I think, again, they, there is a, a general realisation that sport is there for anyone to use, whether it's politicians or, or whoever it might be. But the message and the way it's spoken about slightly, slightly changes. I think you'll see Petra doing exactly the same thing. I mean, it's you know, throughout the presidential campaign, all the various candidates in the first round were seen at one time or another wearing various football shirts, whether it was the Colombian national shirt or 
the shirts of Bukaramanga, for example, when they were campaigning there, or even the shirts of Kukuta, who actually, as a team, didn't actually exist at the time. They, they kind of had a, they're having a period outside of the league at the moment. So, you know, football very much serves any politician. We'll certainly see Petra talking about it in the same way. Whether we'll see the support, for example, for the public policies that were first kind of introduced under Santos and pretty much disappeared to a large extent under Duque, although certain kind of cities and municipalities did continue them, and whether we'll see the same uh, financing of the, the Sport for Peace campaigns, that, that remains to be seen. Have you yet read Jürgen Griesbeck uh, and his work with Football for All? Have you, radical yeah. Football. Yeah, no, actually, it's great. Steve actually sent me the book. Steve um, so I haven't actually got around to reading yet, but actually I met quite a lot of the people that were involved with Jürgen Griesbeck. Um, certainly uh, I spoke to um, Ana Arizabaleta, the, the leaders of the Tiempo de Juego organisation in, in Bogotá, who were also involved uh, not just with Jürgen, but also with Alejandro Arenas, um, who you know were the people that, that started this, this kind of sport for peace methodology. And it's kind of really grown throughout the country. I mean, I visited a project in Soacha, a very kind of poor region of Bogota, where the Tiempo de Juego organization was putting to, to benefit this, this sport, football for peace methodology. So I haven't read, I haven't read Steve's book yet. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Yeah, Juan Mata um, was able to promote it on, um, because he's, he's given 1% of his salary wherever he ends up to common goal. What I found out the other week was that the football for the World Cup in Qatar, where the stadium were built by slaves who had their passports taken away and had little water and were living in cramped conditions. But that's by the by. Um, that's why I'm not watching the World Cup. 1% of each sale of the football that... Uh, was on sale earlier in the spring, goes to Common Gold. Do you know what 1% of the football's cost was? I couldn't tell you that. $1.40, which is... Well, I mean, that's going to help. Better than nothing, but then 1% is always better than 0%. Uh, the book is Football and Nation Building in Colombia, uh, something which took you three and a bit years. Firstly, muzzle top for getting for passing the Viva. Was it... As if you were um, Carlos Baca in 2018 going up to take the penalty when you were going into your Viva. Or were you quite cool because you'd spent three and a half years researching and finding fieldwork to put together this book, which is being released by Liverpool University Press in August? Yeah, and I think think there's always a a couple of nerves, but I think I was fairly... I was fairly looking forward to it, really. I think that it's it's not really as much of an exam as an exploration of the book and a chance to think about all the aspects that it involves. So I think that, you know, you can't help but be an expert after three and a bit years and, and you know, lots of reading and, and really kind of devouring everything that's going in Columbia. I mean, there's a lot that didn't even make the that book. There's a lot of things I'd like to write in a second, but there'll probably be a book for a slightly wider audience. So so you really do come in with a lot of material. It's, I suppose that the only thing you're not sure about is what what is going to be the approach of the Viva Supervisors. Um, I was very lucky to to know uh, Matthew Brown, who is my Viva Supervisor, someone who's a, a kind of an expert in Latin American sport. He's got a book himself coming out fairly soon, I believe. Um, so if someone that I knew, I'd met him, he's someone whose work I really respect, and I knew he would be very fair, but I knew he'd be rigorous. So I think that what it was was a you know, very enjoyable conversation where, where Matthew and, and Philip Swanson, who was the other the kind of other Viva examiner, were, were really coming from slightly different perspectives and questioning some of my ideas and exploring some of the, some of the things that they thought I could have maybe done in more detail or just 
clarifying. So it ended up being a very enjoyable kind of two and a bit hour conversation um, about my work. And I think that, you know, I mean, I've, you know, as a former teacher, as someone who did got thousands of, of, of speaking exams for French and Spanish over the years, it was a kind of environment I was fairly used to. It was slightly different being on the, on the other side of it. But I think it was always, you always see it as being, you know, something to really enjoy. So a chance to really talk about your work in a lot of detail and get, and get more ideas as well. And certainly Matthew's provided a few kind of suggestions or pointers for other details that, that weren't necessarily in the first bit of the thesis that will do, that do appear in the, in the book itself. It is a fab thesis. Um, I look forward to reading it. Just reading the contents page makes me salivate. Uh, there is something called the 10-year plan for security, comfort and coexistence in football, which I think is uh, SDSCCF. That's right, yeah, P- yeah. the PDSCCF yeah, in Spanish, yeah. C-C- yes, because yeah, yeah. Yes, they, yeah, they translated it, yes. Um, and you mentioned the El Dorado League, which took place 1948 to 53. Uh, Di Stefano and lots of Uruguayans, but also Neil Franklin, who was completely blacklisted after he went there for the money. Do you see comparisons, and this is crass, with the Live Golf Tournament and the Colpac Kerry Packer World Series and the El Dorado League? There will always be a private investor with loads of money to fling at sportsmen at Formula One, arguably. And Premier League football, another arguably. Uh, but the El Dorado League, eventually uh, Colombia were banned for five years by FIFA for a few years. Um, what a weird time for that league to come up and exist. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really unusual story because it is almost like the first Premier League. You know, the first, well, may, I mean, one of the first Premier Leagues, you could argue that the first time it maybe happened was the Italian League where they start buying some of the Oriundi some of the Argentinian players, and I think maybe a few Uruguayan players, maybe a few Brazilians as well, who had, you know, they, they, they went over to start playing in Italy and then were kind of re-qualified due to their, their kind of, um, their parents having having originally been migrants from Italy. So it kind of happened a little bit before where there's this kind of appropriating of talent. But I, but I think sport is, you know, and mega events is, is a kind of a contest now. It's a contest of power. It wields a lot of power. It has a lot of soft power in terms of, the, the broadcasting rights, the marketing potential, the, the political power that, that it wields. And it's not something that, you know, inverted commas, the first world are very willing to give up, you know, quickly. Um, you know, so I think that it, there is some degree a sense of a, you know, a, a, a resistance against the third world or the people who are traditionally not being power suddenly contesting it. I think that's an interesting narrative. I think that, you know, you could make a lot of criticism about the way that football is run in the in the richer companies. I think there's a lot to dislike about the Premier League and their owners already, which is conveniently swept under the carpet or, or doesn't really come up in the columns where, where transfer situation, you know, transfer... It will next so year, just... because the, the question, as I keep saying, will be, Alan Shearer, Newcastle are doing so well, why don't you condemn Mohammed bin Salman? Every week, every week Newcastle win, that's going to be the story, which is not football. You know, I, think, I think it may well be, but then I think that that you could really point to, to a lot of other a lot of other companies that don't get that attention. I mean, it hasn't really happened, you know, with 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 owners of various other clubs previously. You know, fans will look at the money, and, and although there will be there will be murmurings, there will be there will be rumbling. Success kind of matters. I mean, I think that the Columbia going back to the Columbia case. What was very interesting about it was that it was really just the the kind of taking advantage of the contracts and actually giving proper contracts to players. 
Um, you know, the Colum- if you look at the Colombian press at the time, some of the things that they really highlighted was this aspect that they were they were giving players what they earned. And certainly, I think that was one of the main main reasons that some of the British players, like Neil Franklin and George Mountford and and so on, you know, went over to to Colombia in the first place. That you know, they found it very difficult to settle. Uh, of, of course, you know, it was a, a complete culture shock. And Colombia at the time was was having was experiencing a, a period called La Violencia, the violence, which was a kind of partisan, kind of very rural based war between liberals and conservatives who were killing each other in the countryside. And that that led to a, a degree of securitization in, in the in the in the cities as well. So there was a lot of resentment that someone who is not seen about the in, amongst the traditional footballing power should suddenly usurp the. The glory of the likes of Argentina and Uruguay and so on, and then steal these best players and suddenly go to play there. It's much the same as happens when I think the Chinese league tried to do the same, or yep. the the US league tried to do the same. It's you know there is a sudden kind of hang on. You're not you don't have the football history we do. Why you know this this can't be done. And then you know and then the criticism all all emerges. And again, I think the, the degrees of criticism will differ depending on the situation. You know, for example, the Qatar situation, we can obviously point to human rights abuses and so on and so forth. Um, I wonder when there'll be a time where, for example, you know, we might start to criticise US football for the US political climate of gun control and kind of white supremacy movement and so on and yeah. so forth. I don't know, you know why it hasn't happened yet. Um, I mean, these, these things exist in most countries. It's whether you choose to kind of pick them apart or not, I think. Yeah, and that's without questioning the English... Empire. Michael Cox's conclusion in his book Zonal Marking was we're now importing the best coaches and there still hasn't been an English winner of the Premier League. Uh, what country connects the captain of the English Test cricket team and the coach of the England Test cricket team? Um, New Which rather proves the point. No one is saying, oh great, Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum uh, reinventing English cricket by winning one and are we playing New Zealand at the moment? That's even odder. We are indeed. Yeah, that's yeah. even queerer. And I wonder, Brendan McCullum is doing well. Yeah, no, I think I think there's an even more interesting with cricket uh, issue with cricket at the moment is where we have the the IPL, the, the kind of T Twenty yes. cricket league, which which is going to, is is the most important sporting league probably aside from the Premier League in the world. And there's a great deal of consternation in the traditional cricket powers of England, Australia, because they're going to reshape the cricket calendar and international cricket is not going to be quite as important because the best players are going to be going there. That's not really so different to the Premier League where, you know, where we have no interest at all in the financial viability or strengths of leagues anywhere else in the world as long as we've got the best entertainers. You know, I think that the, the talent drained from South America of all the best players, you know, leaves a very poor national competition across the continent. You know, you, you really only see young talents a few guys who maybe went abroad and failed, or guys who you know had a great career and a comeback for their swan song in South America. But the Premier League kind of forgets that. So the IPL is really doing the same thing. It's becoming a footballing Premier League, which is going to reshape the cricketing landscape. And I think it's important to remember that you know the, the, the England, the English cricket board, the MCC, you know they they see their role in cricket as being a very benevolent success story, taking cricket to different parts of the colonies. But but really, did they have much interest? In developing the game, you know, as long as they kept their own kind of power. So I, th- I think it's very interesting what what the kind of IPL are doing. I think it, it shines a light back on you know the way in which, for example, the Premier League functions in a very similar way to the detriment of, for example, the national the national games of football or international competition. Well, two things coming from that: Lionel Messi, famously Argentinian, but has been in Spain since the age of what seven, eight, twelve. 
and um, like yeah, yeah um, and they don't love it. Well, they obviously cherish him in Argentina, but he's not as Argentinian as El Diego, the secular saint. And the other thing is that I mentioned cricket because you coached the Sheffield University cricket teams, the university men's yes, teams. And oh, yeah. if there were time, I'd love to ask you about the Yorkshire Cricket Club, but we can't go there. Because, uh, I live very close to uh, Moor Park, uh, Merchant Taylors. That's where Middlesex yeah. play a lot of their first-class games when Lords is in use. Um, but it, yeah, it's good. The England cricket team is is nonsense because it's 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 kind of like a football manager. They do well, hey, they do badly. Sack him. They lose four nil to Hungary. Gareth Southgate is a fraud. Look, it's boring. It's boring now. But to your point about Colombians around the world, in 2014, when Colombia lost to Brazil in the quarterfinals, which led to Brazil losing 7-1 to Germany, only two Colombians played in Colombia as part of their squad. Um, in 2018, when they lost to England on penalties, I think there were only three or perhaps four. And so that goes to show, when you compare that with the teams who got to the 1990, 94 and 98 World Cups, that the globalisation of football had begun. Do you think, oh, this, is a, this is a long point anyway, but I'll just say the name Freddie Rincon and you'll, you'll know what I mean. The kind of, we need national Colombian figures um, who go back to South America um, so Freddie Rincon, as a kid, you would have known him very well because yeah, yeah. Cause he was a superstar. Uh, passed away Absolutely. this year in a car crash. Very recently, did you mourn his death? Yeah, yeah no, that was that was very sad. I think that he was someone that was part of that golden generation of Colombian footballers when they first emerged. You know, the, the kind of the nineteen ninety team is very much seen as the first global expression of Colombian football at a successful level nationally. You know, you can look back to El Dorado; that was very much a club phenomenon. There were brief flickerings in the early 60s and mid-70s of Colombian teams that looked like they might do well. But, but Freddie Rincon and you know and that kind of generation were, were very important. I think that Rincon scored such an important goal. You know, the, the last-minute goal against West Germany in the 1990 group stages where, you know, he sent his pass through by, by Valderrama and then sticks the ball through, I think, although it only is legs yep. to equalise the game and Colombia go through. That goal is so emblematic. It's such an important moment for Colombian football and the Colombian nation. Because again, you know, this is the time where Pablo Escobar is at large. Colombia's reputation is of the most dangerous place on earth. Um, it's widely despised. Every time a Colombian goes to an airport everywhere, they're kind of looked at with suspicion. You know, the kind of the security guards are reaching for their gloves and checking their language, uh, luggage and so on and so forth. So, so that goal was a really needed moment. And again, it must have been played you know, thousands and thousands of times on, on Colombian television. You know, Freddie Rincon and, and that kind of team symbolised, I think, hope as, some, as a way of changing the narrative about the country, of presenting something different. Uh, he played for that t- particular time. He was playing for America de Cali, which was the team that I, I supported when I, when I lived Glory in Glory Hunter. Well, yeah, but then I kind of—that was the—that was the team. I, that was the city I moved. Oh, to. well, that's handy. Sorry, I should say, Cali, Cali won the league championship in 1990 and 92 with Rincon, and yes, so you are yeah. local. It's like a Mancunian living in yeah. Salford. You did have the. Yeah, run. no, it was—it was one of those things. I mean, and you know, there were only two Cali teams. There was them and Deportivo Cali. It just so happened that the guy, that, one of the guys that you know, I'd, I'd become a close friend with at, at school, uh, you know, was the one that took me along to watch America de Cali first. So. So yeah, that was the team that I, I kind of I kind of followed. I mean, I didn't know at the time about the links with the Rodriguez Orejuela kind of Cali cartel and all that kind of thing. But then you don't really know those things when you're twelve and thirteen. 
that that generation really did create a different narrative about Colombia. It brought Colombian footballers to the world's attention. And again, you're absolutely right. At that time, I think only... I think Andres Escobar played very briefly for Young Boys Burn unsuccessfully. Um, I can't remember if, if, if Valderrama... I think Mount Valderrama had been at Montpellier briefly but hadn't done well. So, so Colombia was a very untapped market at the time. Um, and, and, and things have very much changed to the extent now where there is a, a dearth of, I suppose, you know, top-level players in the Colombian League. I think the level has really descended. It's an actually a very interesting league because pretty much most teams can actually win it, which, which does help the, the, in a league. That's very much a difference for the European League. So teams like Tolima or Equidad or you know, some of the slightly smaller teams aren't quite the same reputation as the Nacionals and the Juniors and the Neonas can actually do rather well. Um, but, but, you know, there has been a, a talent drain uh, since those kind of years. And it, and it is great to see the likes of Falcao and Luis Diaz and James Rodriguez doing well abroad because they, they've become ambassadors for the country. And I think that, you know, Colombians are very proud of their achievements, very proud to see them succeeding in the big clubs. Certainly, Luis Diaz was very much on the lips of every every Colombian when, when Liverpool were doing so well. I think every practically every Colombian in the country was, was wanting them to win the Champions League because of Luis Diaz playing for them. So it, it does it does help the country's reputation. But equally I don't think it's you know, I think that the talent drain for the league really doesn't help. I mean it's it's not it's not helping uh, young players develop with stronger players around them. Right. And really they're looking to you know get into the league and then get to either the US as the first port of call or maybe somewhere like Belgium, where quite a few young players have gone to play, maybe Portugal. And then if they're very lucky, then they're looking to get to Spain or to, or to England or to somewhere like Italy. Now, Cucho, Cucho Hernandez, who has played for my lot for the last season, is off to Ohio, we think. There are deals afoot. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that if America is a destination for Colombians, that he sat through a winter in Britain and has gone, you know what, I think I want Ohio now. Um, but it's just a shame because Cucho did look mercurial and brilliant. Uh, and he was uh, found by one of the Pozzo scouts, the Watford scouts in Colombia, where we look for these diamonds and then earn money so that we can pay ageing ex-Man United players like Cathcart and Cleverly. And uh, I, if you want to know about the 1986 World Cup debacle where Colombia were due to host, but actually abandoned plans in 82... Uh, to host it, then do listen to a These Football Times podcast, The South America Files, that uh, Dr. Pete Watson is involved in. That must have been enormous fun to do all of those shows, because um, Stu Horsfield is very good at just kind of serving the question on a platter and just letting you run with it. And it was a good, a good way to help sell your new book, I imagine, Football and Nation Building in Colombia, when it comes out on August 1st. Yeah, no, they were great fun. I mean, it was great working with with Stu and, and Gary and uh, and Steve on those on those podcasts. I think, I mean, originally I just got asked to do the nineteen seventy eight World Cup episode they were doing as part of their political football series, and that was great to do. You know, there's obviously a lot of material there to talk about Argentina. I mean, I'm a kind of Latin American specialist more generally with you know with a focus on Colombia, so that was great fun. And then I think you know it was Gary Gary's idea, Gary Facker's idea to do a series just dealing with the the history and, and, and football culture of each of the countries in, in the kind of common bowl. So it's great fun to talk about, you know, all 10 of those. It involved a little bit of research of my part, you know, trying to find out a bit more about Paraguayan and Venezuelan football particularly. And, yeah, no, that was they were all great to do. And, and being able to do the second series on the cities, going into a little bit more detail on the intricacies of the club culture and the 
the the different attitudes and identities and the different barrios and, and picking out some of the you know the social issues that are very intrinsically linked with with club football in South America. They were great fun to do, and yeah, no, hopefully your listeners would you know they're looking for a, an hour long listen. Please do to look those up as well. Look, the the more and more you talk about football in South America, the more it becomes the ultimate place to go. Never mind Germany. South America is the cradle of football. Jonathan Wilson has written a five million word book. I actually spoke to Jonathan about his book on Argentina, which you may have read. And he said, yeah, we had to cut most of it. The manuscript was so long initially because Argentina um, is a football nation. Colombia seems to be even more so just because you have this national unity project. There was a ceasefire. Uh, Santos did win the Nobel Peace Prize and you have the personal experience of living there. But I wanted to know how you felt when Andres Escobar scored that own goal, never mind the shooting and the, and the, the, the narcos nature of it, because you were here. You were back in England at the time. Yeah, yeah, that was terrible. It was, it was, yeah, that was 1994. We'd just moved back to, to Britain. I was watching, I think I was watching the World Cup in Portugal, actually. We'd moved to Portugal then, I think. I can't remember if, I was, if we were in summer holiday that year in, in, in England or in Portugal, but... You know, when the goal went in, it was it was just one of those moments where you know you thought, oh god, you know something's going to happen here because it, there was so much riding on that tournament. There was so much desperation to do well that you just felt there were going to be consequences. It almost felt like you know, in the words of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the great Colombian uh, novelist, you know, it almost felt like a death foretold. Um, and I think the way in which you know, kind of the the goalkeeper Oscar Cordova kind of fell. You know, as he couldn't change direction, and the way that kind of Escobar was lying there, you know, when it went in, it, it almost became this this symbolic moment, um, and it was it was terribly sad. I think you know, we were all I was desperate for Colombia to do well. I think that it also mattered that it was against the USA. The fact that USA, who you know, the, the, the drug market, who conveniently put back all the problems of the drug trade onto Colombia. Um, who have been you know, largely responsible for helping the drug trade grow in the first place and whose weaponising of the drug wars have led to you know, thousands of deaths uh, as well. So I think that the fact there was so much resentment against the, the Americans and for to lose against a very, you know, quite a poor footballing nation at that time made it even more of a national disgrace. Um, so that, that was absolutely tragic. It, it kind of felt... I mean, I don't think you don't want to say there was inevitability about it, but but you do you did kind of have this feeling of dread, you know, when that goal went and you thought, oh, that's just destroyed a dream, uh, that's destroyed a kind of nation's hopes and, and ambitions and the, the chance they thought we we could finally do something. So it was a very very sad moment. Thirty odd years before, and you've written a really good these football times piece about the draw with the Soviet Union at the '62 World Cup, the first time Colombia had. Re- represented themselves 3-0 down after 12 minutes then 4-1 down then finished 4-4 what a, I can't believe Lev Yashin conceded this goal it's the only goal direct from a corner in World Cup finals history yeah that's right yeah Marcos Cole the, the goal Olympic or the Olympic goal it's, it's, it's I mean there's so much talk about how good Lev Yashin was as a goalkeeper but if you watch the, the goals from that game there are various clips on it on YouTube you can watch he, he's responsible for not just that one. There's an, it's an absolute terrible lack of communication between him, him and the defender at the near post. But he's also pretty much at fault for the fourth goal as well. 
Um, so it's not, it doesn't go well on Lev Yashin that, that game. But again, that was a vital moment for Colombia. This is this was the first time they'd ever been in the World Cup. They'd been slightly lucky to qualify. They'd been Peru in a two-legged, in a two-leg kind of effectively a, a World Cup qualifier. Um, and so you know this team of no hopers really. You know the, the Colombian league has regressed back to uh, a very poor level at the time. You know they turn up against the mighty Soviet Union, uh, who had won the European championships who were you know regarded as one of the potential favorites of the tournament and and suddenly they drew this game and again colombian Colum- the colombian press go absolutely wild they they see it almost like a victory pretty much they forget that actually they drew you know you almost see these the words of triumph of triumph of victoria of victory um there's talking about um about how the you know the Khrushchev and the Soviets can't deal with with the kind of the Colombian capitalism and yeah, it's it's a ridiculous kind of hyperbole of prose, but again you know you have this social context that social context rather that you know this is a couple of years after the the Cuban Revolution and Che Guevara and Fidel Castro's revolution in Cuba there were lots of so there were lots of socialist and communist movements in the country at the time and given the this was dis- destabilizing the country that had already been at war for. You know, I think probably about 14 years since since 1948. So I think that this, you know, this rise of communism was was feared in Colombia anyway. And Colombia had very much allied itself. The Colombian elites had very much allied themselves with the U.S. Uh, as part of the as part of the incipient Cold War. So so this this football match of Colombia versus the USSR and then the draw that happened was very much seen as a victory over communism. And that's how it was reported in the press. Which is why nowadays the World Cup will be about systems, whether you're an African team or Australia, except you've got a funny sub-goalkeeper whom they're desperate to turn into a cult hero, but clearly Massey Ryan's the better goalkeeper and Australia won't reach the knockout stages anyway. Or whether you're one of the many European teams, you're going to play the same system with the same coaches thinking about the same things. It's less about the individual, more about the system. It's tournament football, it's different. It's fixed, Brazil will win. Uh, Or France might win because they've got Mbappe. But it's not the globe... We're not pitting political ideas against one another in this World Cup. It's basically the the best players you've got arranged into a best team. So maybe football's got more meritocratic now, although I don't know if that's a stupid thing to say, given certain nations haven't progressed to finals or people from certain continents haven't reached a final at all. Do you think this World Cup, well, A, are you going to care about it? Uh, and B, oh, given that Colombia aren't in it, or, or are you? Yeah, no, I will care about it. I think that it's, I mean, I disagree with the fact that nothing's a political state. I think it's always a political state. I mean, the fact that Iran are playing the USA, um, immediately that is a political game. It can't help but be that. And yes, there's a football game going on, and yes, the systems and the tactics will probably be the same. And, there's, and the football players themselves have been globalised because, you know, these players will be potentially playing against each other or with each other in German leagues or Spanish leagues or, or Hungarian leagues or wherever it might be. So the players have very much become a global, you know, a, glo- a global feature. You know, that is certainly a change and that reduces the political content. But the fact is they're still representing their nations. So, again, I think from my perspective, you know, coming from as a football academic, you know, yes, I'm enjoying the sport. I'll be interested to see what goes on. I probably won't watch a huge amount of the tournament, unfortunately, beyond during term time. There's a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. But I think what I will be doing is watching what is being said about it and what, what the political 
manipulation or the social manipulations of it are. And I think that, you know, that will matter in South America for the South American teams that are there. It will also matter for the teams that aren't there because, you know, they will have to come up with different ideas about how sport is mentioned and, and how they feel maybe isolated from these global mega events. Uh, what kind of things about being said about sport in the fact that, you know, are, is Colombia now a disastrous nation? Are, is, is, are our policies problematic? Is there some kind of thing we need to change socially to try and to improve our talent, or to improve our, you know, our structures, whatever it may be? The, these things do have a political a content. So I think that that's what's going to be interesting is to see to what extent, you know, national narratives, political narratives, social narratives are going to be part of of the tournament because they are the the fact that we talk about Qatar anyway as being a very political tournament in the first place means that this is already a political tournament and you know we will see you know we will see nationalist ideas political ideas politicians jumping on bandwagons to 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 play on the success of whoever does well or whoever does badly that's just a, a fact of what international sport and mega events do for for politicians and societies that Pele documentary that went on Netflix the complaint which I didn't watch the complaint about it which I imagine you will have watched so I'm not telling you anything new that the complaint about it was that Pele didn't say well this guy is it Tito was not yes um was taking the trophy for himself ditto if Bolsonaro does get back in and that's going to be the big story of October incidentally Colombia have their new president elections every four years at a World Cup year, I found that very fun to yep. note. Um, but yeah, I don't know if Bolsonaro is going to get in, but you bet he's going to yoke himself to Brazil's what I think will be a very impressive performance in Qatar. Or do you think that the opposition would do this, dare do the same thing? Yeah, they, they both will. Um, I mean, certainly the, the, the 1971 is, is, is a kind of case in point with, with it was actually Medici at the time. Uh, was the president? And you can see him, you know, appearing with with Carlos Alberto and all the other 1970 squad members holding the trophy, celebrating the trophy, making himself very much a part of the Brazilian triumph, and then giving a rhetoric that talked about the way in which that his this kind of progressive military government of order and so on were were kind of making a better situation for Brazilians and the football team being part of that. That's very much been the same thing. When, when Brazil won the Copa America, uh, Bolsonaro was, was on the ground, on the pitch, had a medal, held the trophy with the rest of the Brazilian players. He will very much do the same thing as well. But Lula it will do exactly the same thing, who will probably be the, the main candidate for the Brazilian elections. There's a very good academic article. Um, i trying to remember the, the author's name. It's a Portuguese one. Uh, but but they wrote about how Lula had had footballized his his political campaign. You know, he, the fact they talk about him speaking footballese, you know, footballese very well, being able to talk to Brazilians in the language of football and putting politics and social issues that he was putting into place there as well. I'm trying to think which team he supported. I think it might have been either Corinthians or Palmeiras. I can't quite remember which one. He was supported, but he, he spoke about them a lot. So Lula will, Lula will come with a, a football narrative as well. Got no doubt at all where the Brazilian shirt about it. And football will become a contested zone in Brazil in that part of the elections, where they'll both be claiming the, the, the football success, presuming that Brazil gets it for, for their particular political project. That, there's no doubt about that whatsoever, because football sells. It's a way of reaching the people. With, with political messages and invading the kind of back pages of the newspaper that many Brazilians will, will turn to first. So, yeah, no, there will definitely be a contest over 
appropriating the Brazilian football shirt and the Brazilian football team as a, as a, as a mm. national symbol. And as Gareth Southgate says, closer to home on our own patch. Oh, my God. I mean, I've, I've already announced this, but the football library will be shut to new visitors over the World Cup period. I'm not doing any recordings. I'm going to point people to the direction of uh, well, this and 240 other chats. By the way, Dr. P. Watson, you get your football library card. Uh, who do you want on it? Which icon? Oh, there's a question. I'm going to go with... It's got to be Valderrama, hasn't it? Correct. Uh, well, the, the other one... The other one was Higita. Yeah, I mean, Higita's got a slightly tarnished character, though. You know, he visited Escobar in jail and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's someone... Although I kind of understand the, the social reasons why why that was a, that was a thing. Uh, you know, that kind of slightly tarnished identity means that Valderrama is someone I kind of have a little bit more respect for. I remember Valderrama. I watched the England-Columbia game at Grandma Helen's on a Friday night. We were having dinner on a Friday night. Beckham's free kick... Um, and Valderrama's hair, and of course seeing Rene Higuita again, who had done the scorpion kick, um, just because he could a few years previously. Um, so you've got your football library card. But yes, um, what will go on in England? Because A, it's Christmas party season. B, it'll be more expensive to watch TV in your own house in the winter. Uh, and three, you'll be marking and assessing. But do you foresee a lot of your students inviting you to the pub to watch World Cup football. I mean, there will, there will not be any doubt that for a kid of 19, this is a big event. Oh, it's huge. What I will certainly do is I'm actually teaching a first-year module about football and society in Latin America. So I think that I'll certainly be pointing the content of those lectures towards, you know, what Argentina and Ecuador and, and Colombia and Uruguay are going to be... Sorry, not Colombia, Brazil and Uruguay are going to be talking about. Uh, and I think that one of the other things I'm very much hoping to do uh, within the university is, is start up a little kind of informal kind of sport and society uh, discussion group about Latin America or about sport more widely and invite students to participate in this. And I think that these kind of uh, debates are always very interesting. Whether the kind of students will want me down the pub with them to kind of you know, chat about, I don't know. But maybe afterwards in the kind of the, the aftermath of, of, you know, of Ecuador shocking their way to the, the World Cup semifinals or something. Uh, you know, then then maybe we'll have those conversations. You know, I think there'll be certainly a lot to say. I think I already know that there's a lot of events going on in, in academia, you know, readying these discussions about what kind of narratives are going on, uh, what's being done politically, you know, to kind of manipulate the football and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's always an interesting time in South America whenever the World Cup comes around. Yes, and I'm sure you'll, you'll reach out to all your pals in Cali. I note that Falcao, Radamel Falcao, is on 99 caps. He's the record goalscorer with 35. What will happen for his 100th? Will there be like a national Falcao day? I hope so. I think, I hope so. I very much hope so. He's, he's, he's probably a more respected symbol in many ways than the likes of James Rodriguez. I think that James represents a huge amount of talent and creativity, but I think that the way in which he conducts himself at times has not always endeared himself to the Colombian public. There's a little bit a bit of the me first about James. Radamel Falcao, however, is someone who always seems to give everything. He's someone that very much, you know, wears the shirt, bleeds the shirt, sweats the shirt, you know, gives his heart and soul, represents himself very well wherever he's been, plays through injury, toughs it out, you know, has... You know, he's the kind of the tiger. There's something a bit more uh, respected about him. So he's he's hugely respected in Colombia. I hope that he gets 
his hundredth game. I'm, I'm, I hope it's also not one of these slightly meaningless friendlies played in the US or, or somewhere in Saudi Arabia. I hope it's a game in Barranquilla. I hope it's against someone like Brazil or Argentina. Um, but no, he, he deserves a great a great deal of acclaim. He's very much respected in, in the country. You know, and I think still the goals that he was scoring last year at, at Real Vallecano were, were kind of still a source of great pride for, for Colombians more generally. So yeah, he deserves one last run. I hope he gets it. I'm just looking at the fixtures it's it's actually i've put in colombia football fiction it's uh, pulled up the women's because colombia uh, are in the copper america femenina um yeah. i'll just do you know where colombia's next fixture is um i couldn't tell you um i know i mean it's it's slightly in a bit of flux at the moment so i've just appointed a new manager um after the, the failure of, of well two uh, uh, or even three in the in the last in the last campaign uh, so, you know, kind of Lorenzo has come in, he's, he's rather unheralded, it's a rather unexciting opponent. I think a lot of Colombians were hoping that the Colombian football FA might have been able to, to get Bielsa up up to the northern the northern part of South America. I don't think there's any way, however, that Bielsa would ever work with the Colombian football FA, given their incompetence. Um, so it's a slightly underwhelming appointment. We'll see when they organise their first friendlies. I would imagine that... They would probably uh, have a couple of friendlies at the time of the World Cup warm-up games. I think Colombia would be quite a good team for several teams to play. He might be playing the likes of Ecuador, for example. Mm-hmm. So that would probably be their next, their next international. But I'm not exactly sure uh, if anything's been organised yet or what the dates are. Yeah, thank you very much for that. It's just a shame that Colombia will not be in Qatar. They have joined Norway and Scotland in boycotting it for <laughs> yeah. apolitical reasons. But England very Absolutely. much there. Uh, and hey, what great luck that you have um, put a book on your course. You are you are going to assign them to read your book, aren't you? You can't. No. I'll be one. It'll be, it'll be there. It'll be an option. <laughs> I'll be an option. No, I'll kind of, you don't have to. I won't be offended if you don't. But it yeah. really would help you because it meant it would mean that you don't have to repeat yourself about. I mean, I, I did classics, and we had Dominic Berry, who was a Ciceronian scholar. And so he would often make reference to my translation of Cicero's great speeches. And I went, all right, then, if you really want the money, just take it from me. (laughs) Uh, Football and nation building in Colombia. The only thing that unites us is Dr. Pete Watson's book. Dr. Pete, as you'll be known to uh, the students of the University of Leeds, a fine Leodensian university. Uh, Gracias por todas y buenos... well, you can't say Buenos Tardes. Well, I'll say hasta luego, because that's what I always yeah. say. Um, but my, my Spanish is too poor to go to South America. I couldn't get away with it. I could just about go to Florida uh, and, and get away with it. But if I were to go to any South American nation, I would go to Colombia first, and I would take your book and try and get um, Carlos Valderrama. Isn't he involved in FIFA, Valderrama? Probably. He's probably an ambassador of various things, I'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, at some point. He, he basically kind of... You know, there's a slight cult figure that often appears in adverts just going, todo bien, todo bien, that's kind of all cool, it's all cool. That's kind of his, his kind of phrase at the moment. So he's still very much around, still got the hair, still the kind of same character as he always was. So he's sort of the Peter Crouch of Colombian football? <laughs> yeah, possibly, yeah. yeah. Less tall, less gangly, doesn't have the horn section playing for him. Probably has a, probably has a more attractive salsa band if he was to, if he was to get on TV, I'd have thought. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!